So if they can shift it four times, I can't shift it twice. Like maybe I shouldn't be driving. I don't know. Brian Anderson. And I'm Bobby Fazio. And welcome to another edition of Class Racing Today's podcast. All right, today, December 7th, 2020. We have a great episode today. We have an awesome guest. I mean, I like to think all of our guests are awesome, but this one's extra awesome today. Um, so, like I said, December 7th, 2020, Pearl Harbor Day, everybody. We don't get political on this station, but we do get sentimental. So let's everybody remember Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. All right, Brian, how's it going? Going great. How's everything over in the East? East Coast is, you know, same as always. Cold, locked down, uh, you know. Did you get extra uh, time to go up taxes. the Christmas tree or what? Yeah. <laughs> did you set did you decorate that tree or did I you? did all this myself? Okay. I I didn't have any help this year. I was I'm trying to get in the Christmas spirit as hardcore as I possibly can right now. Nice. You got those Mustangs hopped up yet, ready for the class racing revival, big money race or what? They are, you know what? I got a lot, a lot of new ideas for next year. And you know what? I, I can actually attribute some of these new ideas to uh, our guests. And um, post his uh, um, webinar he did the other day. Excellent, excellent webinar where I learned a lot. And it's got me like second guessing everything I do right now. So. In case you guys don't know who our guest is today, he's a five-time world champion. He's got 27 national event wins under his belt. He actually has 27 divisional event wins under his belt, too. So what are the odds of that? He's won in six different categories. Okay. And Brian hasn't even won in one category yet. And this guy's won in six different categories. And I'll be happy <laughs> when I win a race. Like, not to mention, I think he's, he's younger than both of us, which is also another dagger. So, without further ado, let's welcome today's guest, Mr. Justin Lamb. Thank you guys for having me on. I, uh, I appreciate you bringing me on, and I appreciate you guys joining that uh, deal with Luke and I last week, the webinar. It turned out pretty good. So, I, I'm telling you, I, things that I had thought about previously but never really attempted to, like, actually, I don't know. I've researched certain things, but now after listening to you guys, I really, I highly recommend it to anybody that hasn't, you know, listened to it. There's a lot, a wealth of information out there between uh, Justin and Luke, two tremendous, tremendous drivers. Yeah, well, we appreciate it. That's, uh, I mean, kind of goal of that is to uh, just build interest in elite. And it, I mean, it kind of just scratches the surface, I guess, of what's on the inside, you know? All right. Now, Justin, you you started racing junior dragster when you were eight years old. Now, obviously, every question we ask every single, I mean, I should say every guest that comes on here, we ask them, how did you get started racing? 99.9% .9 of the time, it was through their, their dad who raced before or their mom or somebody, a parent got them into it. Is that your story also? Did your dad get you, did your dad race and then he got you a junior dragster or what? Um my father actually never raced um especially didn't drag race but he was very um 
he, he was always into fast cars, fast boats, fast everything. So believe it or not, him and a partner had a, uh, a blown alcohol hydro, like a, a drag boat that he didn't drive. They had a, another uh, gentleman drive it, but um, him and a partner were owners in that. And then uh, they crashed it. The guy that drove it got pretty hurt. They built another one and raced it for a little while, but ultimately kind of decided that it just wasn't, they didn't want to responsible, be responsible for hurting someone's father or dad or you know whatever the case right so ultimately he uh he decided to sell it i was probably six or seven years old at the time and it was as simple as like we were at a car show in vegas and junior dragsters were just coming out at the time at least on the west coast they were just coming out and uh we saw them on display and i got one for my eighth birthday so um believe it or not neither one of us had any drag racing experience um specific to asphalt at all so really yeah that's all awesome. what it an awesome eighth uh, birthday gift that must have been. How did you have success in junior dragsters? Yeah, I had a little bit of success. Yeah, uh, specifically West Coast. I mean, we raced quite a bit, and I won the division championship a few times. And back then, I believe now the division championship in juniors is like if you qualify for your race, then you go. I don't know something like if you qualify for the you go to one race and the winner is the champion. Back then, it was like a point structure, just like, just like stock super everything today, right? So you had to actually do good, and you had to travel around all these different events, and there wasn't just one division, you know, final division race. I see. All right, yeah. So definitely a cumulative, yeah, uh, type platform, which absolutely. I mean, in my opinion, is is the better way to go. That's yeah. It's just a little bit different. Like back then. <clears throat> The only thing you got a Wally in a junior for was winning the division championship, the whole series, or winning um, the national championship, which they have every year, like at one location. Now, like, I mean, I've been at the junior race, like where there's like a junior race with my son, and there's like, I think there's a Wally if you win second round now. It's like everything gets a Wally. Oh, wow. <laughs> a little bit different. <laughs> How old is your son? <clears throat> he just turned seven. Okay. How many kids do you have? Just two. Two kids. Daughter. Right. My daughter's three. So how in depth was your junior drag racing? Like, how did you learn? Like, were you trying to drive the stripe and do stuff like that still then? Or yeah, is absolutely. it just? Yeah, no, it, I, I mean, I say this quite often, but like junior drag racing, literally, I mean, it taught me like all of the base and then some like keeping my father, I knew nothing. So, I mean, we had to learn and learn it together and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it did it. I mean, at first the starting line, and then it was like, wow, we keep breaking out. We better learn how to hit the brakes, right? I mean, it just kind of evolved from there. And yeah, I mean, by the time I stopped racing when I was 15, and I mean, absolutely, you drove the starting line, the finish line. And like, and then in, in my day, like there was a lot of people that you guys know or know of, um, but the competition was definitely, uh, I mean, it was tough back then. Like we traveled all over the Western part of the country Arizona, California. We, we used to race at Pomona. I mean, at Pomona, there'd be 200 plus cars at a junior dragster event on a, just a Saturday event when you could, that was when Pomona could be open more, you know? And, uh, but I mean, everybody like, if, I, I'm sure you guys know Kyle Rizzoli, Sean Langdon, Mangus, uh, Ryan Mangus, uh, Leah was all in our group. Uh, like we, there was a whole group of us that still race big cars or professionally today that were like all, you know, racing in Southern California. And it was tough back then. It was, it was a lot of cars. I mean, I don't know how it is at other tracks, but I see it in Vegas, you know, they get 
40 cars for a junior event is kind of a big day. We had 200. I mean, it was, it wow. was just a different animal back then, you know? That's crazy thinking about the level of competition even then. Like, they're all really good now, but just being able to race each other and have that level of competition probably made you have to get better faster, really. Absolutely. Yeah. How so what was, the, what was the big transition? Like, when did you decide you wanted a big car? Well, it was a huge transition, to be honest with you, because, and I don't understand this because so many people do it, and we were, we were the same, but um, so many people get out of junior dragsters and the immediate thing is just get another dragster, which tends to be a super comp car with electronics, right? So immediately, we, I actually had like an 85 Monte Carlo, which was like this, it was built as a super stalker, a local guy had it, and, uh, but it, it wasn't super stock legal, like it was a super stock legal car, but it just had a big block in like a regular 468 bracket motor. So immediately I started racing that um, in local races out in like pro bracket which uh, I had like immediate success in that bottom ball. Honestly, it was quite simplified compared to what I was raised. Like, I mean, a junior dragster, you're like, you know, from a dead idle swapping feet, like driving the finish lines a little bit temperamental because there's like a centrifugal clutch. You can't just like rip the gas like normal. Well, for, I mean, like literally I turned 16 on Thursday, got my dri regular driver's license on Friday and race Saturday and I won the first race, but it was like I went from like foot braking at an idle to a trans brake and something I could actually rip the throttle at the finish line, not have to, you know, work the brake pedal. Like it was just a, it was way simplified. So like I had like immediate success in that. Well, then we're like, oh, well, let's get a dragster because that's what we should do. And it was a train wreck because, you know, neither my father nor myself, we didn't know anything about a super comp. We didn't understand a throttle stop, a ratio, a nothing. Like that was all new. Like we didn't know any of that. So it's interesting, like, I, I probably should have, I would encourage most anybody coming out of a junior, I mean, that's my suggestion, go get a bottom ball car or a stock and super stocker, because, I mean, first of all, for as expensive as some of these junior dragsters, I mean, I got one for my kid and was five years old, and I could have bought a pretty nice stocker for the price of it, and so you could, like, you could get a pretty nice stock eliminator car with the price of your, your used junior when you sell it and, and get into something that you already do, as opposed to, I feel like nine out of 10 kids jump in a super comp dragster, you know, which they have success also. I mean, like look at Langdon, he won two world championships in super comp. And I believe uh, Chris Dodd, who won the world this year in super comp was a junior drag racer. I mean, there, there's success stories. Don't get me wrong, but like it's, it's a lot easier. And, and I guess in fairness, like, like Sean's dad, you know, Chad had raced his whole life and, new drag racing and understood super comp like so he might have had like a little direction like if you have no direction just get in a bottom bulb car because it's just so much it's exactly what you were just doing you know yeah that's uh probably the biggest difference is if you've already have experience and know how to make it work and then to bring your kid into it would be completely different than having no clue and like that was kind of like me like hey yeah let's get in the superstar let's get in the stock like, right I had no idea. It seemed like a big curve, but it still wasn't much difference than the little bit of bracket racing I did before that. You know, it's just yeah. I mean, understanding like what class your car goes in and all of that is probably a lot more complicated. But the the actual racing of the car is not. You know, correct. But you just have to know what class it can fit in, right? Correct. <laughs> all right, I know it runs this class. You really only have to know one thing, and then just try to figure it out. That's. I just try to keep it simple the same way, like. I don't know anything else, but I know they told me my car is a B car, so I'm going to run it in B, you know, and then as you start learning, then it kind of makes sense, but. Right. 
I could definitely see getting into delay boxes and all that stuff. How, if you didn't know, it would be really confusing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Justin, I know you had some, some guidance from the likes of, you know, Peter Biondo, Kyle Seipel. Um, I read that they, you know, kind of took you under their wing um, at some point. What kind of things were they showing you or helping you realize that you weren't realizing before? Well, it's interesting. I actually, even though he's out there by you on the East Coast, I actually um, kind of became friends with Pete first and then ultimately met Kyle through Peter. Um, and Peter was very much um, like I had like the fundamentals of racing, but more like like mindset and just understanding. I don't know. I He helped me in all facets of racing. I mean, let's be realistic. Besides the mechanical part, like he could probably change oil and it stops there. So I kind of figured that out on my own, but um, just driving in general. And just to be honest with you, um, him and I ultimately, and, and, and then him and I and Kyle, ultimately we all three raced together a lot. And first with Pete, I mean, he would uh, fly out and race my dragsters once in a while, whatever at some of like the high dollar races. And um, I mean, he doesn't even have to speak just watching him race. You'll learn like a ton, just it's, it's unbelievable. But um, and then ultimately, like Kyle and I raced together for years. And, and I got to tell you, Kyle, I feel like, especially the last eight or 10 years, we, ra we raced together for a stint, like in the mid 2000s. And then he worked and didn't race much. And then we started racing together again in probably 2014 or 15 until he got sick. And uh, at that point, I feel like, like I wasn't, I mean, you're always learning, but I wasn't necessarily like learning racing from Kyle. Like I knew how to race like that for, with Kyle. It was all like perspective, positivity. He is like the most positive person ever. I'm probably a little bit on the negative side and uh, just, just perspective. I mean, you know, I'd get the ladder and be all pissed off. He's like, dude, you're going to beat all these guys anyway. Just freaking go beat them. Like, what does it matter? You know, like he just, it, it was just more of a, he definitely taught me like, to be a better person, to be a better, which ultimately made me a better racer. Like it was kind of, I feel like Kyle's influence was much more on my personality slash me as a person that ultimately made me better. Pete was definitely much earlier. Like, I mean, him and I, it's funny. I used to talk to him like every day driving to college. I, he lived in New York and drove to Jersey where the business was at his dad's house, which used to be in Jersey. And, uh, you know, he would, be driving to and from work and I'd be driving to and from college. I went to UNLV here and like, we'd talk, you know, every morning, every other morning, like while we were both had an hour commute or whatever. And uh, just, yeah, I mean, we did, he did teach me like a ton about racing, but a lot of it was just, you know, a lot of it at that point, we were just friends and talking about life. But when I would have a struggle, you know, like if I was at the track and, chasing delay in my drag or whatever, like I, you know, I'd lean on him to like, what would you do here? You know? And it just ultimately, it taught me a lot. I'd like to stop there and ask. So I find that as myself too. So when you get the ladder and it's like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta race Alcorta, you know, or there's always that guy that I don't really want to race. And when you're just starting everybody on there, I don't really want to race. Right. Like yeah. I had, a, I struggled the first year out like, Oh geez, you know, I just want to buy is the only race. I feel like I have a chance of winning. Right. Like yeah. how important was that as a mindset to just know, like how, 
for people starting, like how do you flip that switch to where, you know, you got a chance to beat any single person out there. I mean, you just have to know that any single person, I mean, I've been like on the other end of the spectrum now, like I've been beat, like I'm probably a guy that some don't want to race. And like, I I mean, I've got beat by the guy's his first race. And I've also beat the guy that has been right. You know, like I've had to beat Fletcher. Like it just, you have to beat everybody and, and everybody's equipment is so good. And, and the tools are there to be a good driver. And it's just, uh, the only thing I can tell you is like, everybody has a chance to win now. Like that, and that's, what's making it tougher and tougher and tougher as the years go on. Like even from now to 10 years ago, like it's just, everything's better. Cars are better. Engines are better. Tires are better. Everything's better. Like drivers are better, like all of the above. And, uh, the only thing I can tell you say that's one of the, would you say that's one of the biggest things fundamentally though? to being a better racer is just having that mindset that I can beat any single person next to me, or is it like, and if you um, can't beat them mentally, you're never going to win in the, the other lane, are you? Yeah. I mean, I would say you definitely, you definitely need to have confidence. Um, I think the confidence comes in how you prepared. Like if you know that you've put forth the effort beforehand, like, you know, you've, you've hit the practice tree, like you should, you've, you know, worked on your car, it's the best to your ability. Like your car's running the best to your ability. You know, you're confident you're dialing as far as understanding the weather and things. Like if you, if you get everything else right, when it's time to race, like who cares who's over there? Like you, you've got to beat everybody to win the race. So unless you're showing up not to win the race, like that, that's my opinion. You know, like you've got to be, as long as you're prepared, I feel like you'll have the confidence to, to put forth a good run to try to win the round, you know? It's just crazy Justin, how mental. When you're, when you're when you're watching all those factors, weather, wind, um, temperatures, you know, oil temp, trans temp, water temp. Do you ever? I mean, that does that add to like the anxiety leading up to the round? Like, I have to pay attention to so many little things. If one of these things is out of place, it could throw off my whole program or my routine or anything like that. Does Does it ever affect you? Does it ever? Do you get nervous or anything like? Um, I don't think at this point I get very nervous, but all of those things that you named are almost like a distraction from getting nervous. Instead of me sitting back there, like worrying about this is a huge round for a championship, or this is a huge round to win this national event. Like I am focused on other things like, um, the weather and the wind and the blah, blah, blah. And that, that for me personally is almost calming. Like, cause I'm not worried about driving. I'm just worried about that stuff. Like that's, and it's very matter of fact, it's not, I mean, the wind is what it is, right? Or the air temps, what it is, like the DA is what it is, like whatever. I mean, it, it's not, you can't control it. So you just got to dial accordingly and it, and it's very math based, which I mean, I do math for a living. So like for me, it's just, I don't know, it, I guess it's, that's, that's probably what's calming for me and makes me worry less about actually, uh, you know, like, like I don't ever go into a round like worried about like oh, I need to hit the tree here. Like, I got to hit the tree every run. Like, I mean, I got to hit the tree in time runs. What's the difference, you know? Right. And, you know, that's I, a... and I do math for a living too, so I'm right there with you. Right. <laughs> it's funny when you talk about you got to hit the tree every round. Um, how, how can I ask that? Basically, you know, I was, was watching in, on your webinar and looking into the elite, you know, Everybody says you got to get a practice tree and you just go out and you keep hitting it and hitting it and trying to get more consistent. What advice do you have? Like, how does someone start doing that the right way? Well, I think that you need to, 
first of all, figure out your delay, which there's many ways to do it. Like, it's as simple as like, like, I feel like you probably know where your spot is in your car, right? Like, you know, like, if I hit the bottom, I'm going to be whatever. So if you just make your, if you make your uh, practice tree match your spot in your car, it, number one, once that's done, and like, once you know, like, I literally haven't changed the, the rollout in my practice tree in probably, I don't even know five years more, maybe more like a long time. Like I don't change it ever. So once I set my rollout, I just make sure that's my spot. And, uh, and to be honest with you, you can do it the other way. Like if you're not, if you're fairly new, I don't even encourage you to like, okay, I had this double O light one time and I think I let go here, like get on the practice tree and just figure out what your spot, like, like figure out what spot you can duplicate over and over and over again, and just do that. And let's say you jump in your race car and you're 30 red, just figure out how to make your car not 30 red. Does that make sense? Because that's your spot you're most consistent in. But like, once you figure it out, like, I'm going to be honest, I hit the practice tree one time an hour, 10 times a day. Like I work 10 hours. That's my work shift is from 7.30 to 5.30 every day. And I literally hit it 7.30, 8.30, 9.30, 10.30, like all, once, a, once an hour every day. I don't, I'm not one to sit down and hit the practice tree 20 times in a row over and over again. You never do that at the racetrack ever. Right. Why would you do that at home? Like you don't get to make three practice shots before the one that really counts on the racetrack. You literally just have to roll up there, hit it. And I mean, normally it's way more than an hour. I've reduced it to an hour, but normally like three hours later, you get one more shot. And then like 24 hours later, you get first round. Like, so <laughs> to me, it makes no sense to hit the practice tree over and over and over again, unless you're trying to figure something out. Like you're trying to figure out your spot on the bottom and what you're most comfortable with, or you're trying to figure out, you know, what you, you know, like there's sometimes like if I'm missing it and I don't understand why, like I'll sit down and just hit it until I duplicate on the practice tree. Like, okay, what was different there mentally, you know? There's no do-overs in drag racing. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, sorry. I'm going to use my mulligan now. I had a oh, 15. I missed it. Right. You can buy back at a bracket race. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Justin, so let me put you in a technical situation here then. Let's say you have your gauges right where you want them, trans temperature, you know, it's at right at 120. I got my water temp at 140. I got my oil temp here. I got the weather. I got everything ready. I got my dial in ready. I do my burnout and they stop us for 15 minutes because they got to clean something up. They got to stop you, the other guy too. Right. What, what, What's what goes through your head? Are you are you the kind of guy like do you do another burnout? Do you sit there? Yeah. Are you monitoring everything? Uh, Nothing. Is it? It doesn't matter. He's in the same situation. Like it's irrelevant. So, um, and I also it goes back to like making sure your car's good. Like I, my water temp can be off ten degrees and my car's going to run the same. It's the confidence, you know. It seems probably the biggest thing I picked up so far is you know it just seems like this guy's got everything figured out. Like how hard is it? But I couldn't imagine hitting the tree once an hour, like even five days a week. What would that do to everyone's game? Yeah. I mean, but that I mean it's not said, just like, a coincidence like you're that good. Well, but even the car, I don't even know that it's like confidence in myself. I just have confidence like that I put in the work. Like I test multiple times a year. Like, I mean, you've been racing stock for what, two years? When was the last time you just went and tested? Yeah, I try every test day. I try to go just get runs. Just get runs. And do you try stuff with the car? Like, have you tried different weight oils and then hot lap to see how it made a difference or things like that? Like that, that's the kind of, like a lot of people go to the test and tune day and just go up and down the track. Like 
I go to the test and tune day and I might run three runs with one weight oil and then switch to another weight oil and make three more and compare the difference or, you know, like things like that. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I just have confidence that I've put in the work over time to have confidence. Like, oh, so I sat on the starting line and the motor was five degrees hotter. Who cares? Like, I know what five degrees of weather is going to do, temperature is going to do. Like, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Like, you need to start with the basics. But the only thing I'm saying is, like, fast forward, like, I've done this three quarters of my life between juniors and even, you know, quote, big cars. Like, I mean, I've been racing, what, I guess 16, 17 years now in a big car. Like, all and and I just uh, have been very fortunate that, you know, my father didn't mind. But like we've spent a lot of time, money, effort, everything in testing, and I mean, I can't. I mean, and I still do it to this day. Like I, I mean, I think I've had, I forget how many, but I had like seven or eight torque converters in my cobalt this year alone. Like my same cobalt that I've won, like whatever with, I had seven or eight converters in it this year. Like just trying stuff, trying to make it better, trying to make it work better, trying, you know, like everything, all of the above. So I think it's just the confidence comes from putting in the effort to understand all of that. And that's the, I would say that's the difference. And some of it is a product of where I live. Like, I have to tell you, like I can go testing in January. If it wasn't for COVID, there's literally, there was supposed to literally be a bracket race next weekend that I was going to go try another converter at in my cobalt. Literally next week, we put a different gear ratio in my cobalt and i also want to try a converter and i was going to go to the bracket race i think it was supposed to be i'll look here yeah it was supposed to be like the 12th or 12th and 13th with the test day on the 11th in the middle of december like yeah there's no way in i mean so some of that like i have that option you know like i don't know and, and maybe a, a lot of people would have to travel to test like i do you know so like i mean there's times like i go into winter nationals and i've already made 20 test runs trying things whatever before I even make a qualifying run. One thing I've realized is it seems like people that are really pretty dominant in the sport and seem like they have their stuff together are a constant student. They're kind of a student of the, of the, you know, they never stop learning. They're always working. They're always trying different things. The, and they're just data freaks, right? Like I know even Mike's that way. Like he can tell you little changes and what it does and just, you know, compiling all that data. It just takes all, there's a lot less unknown variables if something changes. I mean, that's, Absolutely. it's hard yeah, to replace can, seed time. Well, I think you have to keep learning and keep working because I think that everybody else is like, I, uh, even my dad and I have like gotten, I remember, uh, the first time. So I won my first championship in my 70 Camaro back in 2013, I think it was. And that winter I literally ripped the whole front end of the, car apart and it had whatever shocks and whatever springs and what you know just whatever and like so keep in mind I just won the championship my dad's like what are you doing why are you ripping it apart and I remember I actually had Randy and his father send me new front springs their shocks that they do the valving for like because it needed it like I just felt like I needed to keep making it better just because I won doesn't everybody else is at home making their stuff better I mean that's my mentality like everybody spends the winter working on their cars. So I need to also, whether I just want or not, I still need to be working on it. You know, you I kind of become the target my cobalt and I was going to go testing in the middle of January to try a new gear ratio and converter, you know, like who cares that I won the race last year. I need to win the race next year. <laughs> right. Well, being number one makes you a target. I, I don't even know how much I buy into that. Like, uh, but you're I the agree guy maybe to an extent, but I also think that 
as I said every, earlier, like everybody is so good and everybody's cars are so good. Like it, it, you're always a target. Who you're racing is their target. Like, yeah, does it really close. matter? I mean, if I have a number one, I mean, and especially, I guess, I don't know. I feel like in the situation I'm in currently, if I have my normal number, 7474, number one, are you going to race me any different? Like, probably not. You're probably going to take a shot regardless, right? Like, that's just... So I think it's I actually easier because I don't have anything to lose. <laughs> which that's a that is a big problem. Like to be honest with you, like it it really is. Like I uh I've said that many times to people. Like people race you like they have nothing to lose, and that's what's difficult. Like they're not afraid to turn it red, but if it, if it's green, they're gonna be low double O and you get mm -hmm. your hands full. Like, and that's what I'm saying. Like, it doesn't matter who I race, I gotta be good. Like everybody's good right now, you know, it's just the way it is. Now, Justin, your your uh, Camaro in stock is fuel injected. You're a math guy. What um, do you prefer, tuning speed density or alpha n? Are you willing to share? Um, mine is speed density, and I that's the way I was taught. A, a friend of mine, Ben Strader, um, who owns a a business called EFI University, is who yeah kind of took me under his I watch wing his videos. When, yeah, great. Yeah, when mm -hmm. he found out that I had the Copo and we got together. He kind of like taught me everything about that, that I, what I do know, which is not much, but what I do know about fuel injection, he taught me. And uh, he, uh, he was a big proponent of speed density. And uh, to the point that like my opinion of alpha N is like, you're crazy if you do it that way. Like it doesn't really make sense. Um, but I guess, I, I mean, I can see both sides. Like I can see some people think like, oh, well, it's more like a carburetor. Like it just doesn't change. But like I got news for you, carburetors do change. Like it's when I started learning fuel injection, I realized how smart a carburetor is. I mean, I can literally like, it's crazy. I mean, I, I have a 394 and a 358 for my Cobalt single four barrel mode. I can take the carburetor off of one foot on the other, and you think like they're 40 cubic inches difference, and the carburetor just pulls more or less fuel as needed. Like I, I run the same jet with both motors. Like it's. I mean, a carburetor is really smart. If I put 40 more cubic inches in my cobalt, I'm telling you, we're going to have to mess with the EFI to get it to run right. Like, they're not that smart. I mean, carburetors are really, really, really smart. And it made me really appreciate a carburetor when you have to manually do everything, you know? Right. Are you a uh, an open loop or closed loop kind of guy? Uh, I typically run it open. But, I mean, if you had, like, a new combo, I mean, it's just a safety thing to run right. it closed. Right, yeah. like. Don't want to blow it up on a test. Yeah. <laughs> I typically run, like if I change something, I'll run close and then see if there's any changes. And once I can get that where it doesn't change much, then I'll switch it. Yeah. Guess what? Your carburetor's always closed loop. Oh. Oh, don't make me overthink that. Oh, the internet just went wild, Justin. Thanks. Yeah, I've, it's funny, like, I mean, Ben has turned into be one of my best friends and uh, I give him a hard time all the time. I'm like, he'll be on the dyno, like messing with us. I'm like, you know, if you had a carburetor, you'd have already made like, five full pulls, you know, instead you've like got to 3000. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's just like so stupid. I mean, carburetors are so smart. Like they really are. Like if there's up to me, everything I have, would just have a carburetor. <laughs> if I could put one on my coat and my copo, I'd have it. Trust me. Ah, man, that takes all the fun out of it. Yeah. My problem is that with the, with the, uh, I don't know how to mess with a carburetor, you know, as much as fuel injection. So I'm touching that. I'm on that laptop more than I should be at a race. I, I screw myself because I just like, oh, let me try this, you know, in the second qualifying session or 
you know, third qualifying session and see if I can pick up a couple more hundredths. And it's foolish, but I, I've just fully embraced the style. I was a bracket racer and I didn't used to care, you know, 10 years ago. Oh, I don't care how fast I go. I just want to be consistent. I fully embrace stock limiter. I want to go fast and it's, you know, it's, it can hurt people like me. You know, the only thing I've learned with the EFI stuff, this sounds very simple. Now, don't get me wrong. Like you can get it to accelerate a little quicker, you know, by messing with the EFI a little bit, but at the end of the day, if, if your air fuel ratio is, let's say 13 and you got 30 degrees of timing, it's just going to make whatever it's going to make. Like it doesn't. And, and I don't even think if you have 30 degrees of timing and you move the air fuel ratio to 12, nine, instead of 13 like maybe my car is crazy, but it doesn't make a damn bit of difference. Like I just, uh, I don't know that I, like I've never gone to the track and messed with the EFI. I mean, even when, like when Ben's with me and he's like great at it and, does all this stuff. I mean, we've never like gone to the track and like with the EFI picked up five hundredths or it just, it, I mean, it makes what it makes. Like now if it likes more timing or if it likes to run a little leaner or richer, that's one thing. But like, once you figure out what it likes for the most part, I mean, it runs what it runs, you know, like it, it's only going to make so much horsepower with so much timing. So I don't know, like, I'm going to be honest, like uh, I'm probably the complete opposite of you. We ran what three weeks back to back in Vegas. At one point, I think I won like 16 or 17 rounds. And I promise you, I never had the laptop hooked up. Unless I changed the launch RPM, I never had the laptop hooked up, like for anything. That's, uh, that's like the key to basics, right? Like everybody, I don't change hardly anything. Like I, I'm probably a little sloppier. Like I check my air pressure in the morning. <laughs> or I had to put in 23 pounds, do my burnouts, 24 pounds, and I don't hardly check it or look at it because it doesn't change. Like once I did my qualifying, if I don't touch anything, it seems like it's always more successful, but people are always messing with everything and want to know why their cars don't run consistent. And that always, why you're trying to change things. Like, like you said, test, like I would rather go do a test day and then try things. But once you're racing and it's out of the trailer, it's like, all right, now we just run. Yeah. And that's where I will typically try stuff like that is testing. But like, once I go to a race, I try not to mess with the EFI much, just let it do its thing. And I mean, it's in, um, you know, speed density or whatever, you know, you guys call it. It's, um, I run in what like VE specifically, but yeah. so I run in like the VE mode and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, I just let it do its thing. Like I'm, I'm telling you, like even in Vegas, I mean, we raced three weeks and it was as hot as, I mean, I can literally tell you, I forget, uh, hold on. The last weekend is this. I mean, here's, I mean, this is one race in Vegas where round one, it was 80 degrees. This is the Vegas Nationals, 80 degrees, and round two, it was 56 degrees. Mm. Like, and I mean, I don't adjust nothing. It just right. does that's, it. You know? That's the beauty of speed density. It, it right. does it for you. So I like that. I don't even connect the laptop. <laughs> so we got All a right, question. So... We got a question on Facebook yeah. from John McLaughlin here. He wants to know what your thoughts are and where do you see the future of Sox Superstock going? Well, I, man, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew the future of all of it. I mean, I hope it's good. I, uh, my fear is never with Stock and Superstock. Like, I think there's always going to be a demand for people wanting to race like the old, like old cars and muscle cars and people love it. Like period. They just do. Um, so I kind of feel like, um, 
I guess I kind of feel like stock and super stock will be fine as long as NHRA is fine. And I think that like this camping world thing, I think was huge. Like I was pretty worried before the camping world deal. Like what's even going to happen in NHRA? I mean, they, how much money can they be? And I don't know anything on the inside. Like I'm just simply saying like pure economics, like they got no fans in the stands, like TV ratings aren't up very much. Like what, how, how can they be making money right now? And that's bad for all of us. Like I've got a lot of money invested in NHRA basically, you know, like cars and rigs and all of the above, like, so that was my fear. I, I feel like as long as NHRA is fine, stock and super stock will be great. Just it's exciting to watch. Like people in the stands can relate. Like new or old, like the, the the young kid in the stands can see like that brand new Camaro that he thinks is cool, and his father can look at the '69 Camaro he thinks is cool, or whatever. Like you know, um, there's probably not many that think Fords are cool, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Do you um, see? Uh, do you do any association races? You know, we really don't have, um, they, they do in Southern California at, at this one track in Fontana. I think they have like a stock super stock association, but nothing at like the magnitude of like what Mans tells me about. Like Mans is telling me that they, you guys have a deal that gets like a hundred plus cars that pays four or five grand to win yep. on a constant basis. Like I, the one in California might pay four or 500 and get 30 cars. Like I can't, it's nothing. Oh. It's not even comparable. Yeah. I think that's like, for me, I don't, know the difference like association racing here is actually easier to do than the nhra stuff but it, it brings some hitters i mean there's a lot of super good drivers because of it i think you know we'll go to a race and there's 60 to 100 cars there any one of them have a really good chance of winning it you really yeah. have to step up your game yeah no i i wish we had something like that it would be a lot of fun um we just out here we don't we're kind of sheltered here i thought every place was like that but right now what about, uh, what do you think about Bohannon's race? He's doing the class race revival. Have you looked into that much? I've looked into it. Um, and I, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I hope it works. Let me just put it that way. I, I don't know. Uh, it's bad timing for me. Like my schedule, like to try to go is, uh, we have like a Vegas divisional followed by the Vegas spring fling. Those are like back to back then Bohannon's race would be the very next week followed. And then I'd have to turn it. So I'd have to drive from Vegas after the fling all the way to St. Louis and then, then straight back all the way to Pomona for what's going to be the winter nationals. And then it goes like Pomona, Phoenix, Vegas all in a row. So if I go to Bohannon's race, it's like literally like six or seven weeks in a row. And it's in between, like I could just, that, that could be like my week off to get everything oil changed and ready to go. Like it, it's really, really bad timing for the West coast. Cause we have so much racing in those two months and it's right in the middle of all of our West coast racing. So, um, to, to answer what, like, I don't see me going because of the timing, unless for some reason I can get someone to drive the rig or something and maybe, um, and on the flip side of that, like, do I love the idea? Absolutely. Do I think there's 260 people that are going to spend $700? I don't, but Maybe he doesn't need that many cars to make it happen. I don't know. That's just a lot of money for my quick take on stock and super stock is I think that probably, and this might be overstating it, that like a half the field comes to a national or divisional or whatever event and thinks they have an actual chance to win. And it might be closer to like 20, 30, 40%. It might be even less than that. Actually believe when they roll in the gate, they have a chance to win. But I do think, 50, 
come there because they like to go fast, because they want to play with the performance of their car for the camaraderie of, I mean, let's be realistic. Like, I mean, most of my friends are at the racetrack. Like, I mean, although I'm there to win, like, I mean, that, like we are there for the friendships and the, and the camaraderie of our competition and blah, 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 blah. And I, and I don't know the people that are there for that are going to spend $700. The people that are there to win are going to spend $700 because they think they got a chance to win. But the ones that are there that, you know, the, the older retired guy that wants to hang out in Florida for the month of February and go to all those races down there, like he's hanging out with all his buddies in between at the RV park and the blah, blah, blah. Like he can race it with all of his friends for $160. He doesn't need to spend $700. And that's my fear of it is just that. Um, but my hope is that it does work because I would love to, an event like that and more of them. Um, I already heard kind of rumblings of another one that might take place near Florida, Georgia, something like that, like a couple of weeks before Bohannon's race, something along those lines. Like I've just heard rumors. I don't know if it's true, but I, if more of those events take place, I want to be there. Like, I mean, that's good money. And, you know, I, I mean, I would love to be given the opportunity to try to win it. I just, uh, Getting 260 people is a lot, you know. Yeah, it'll really be interesting. I know uh, South Dakota Wisers, I can say there's probably at least six to 10 of us probably looking at going. Yeah. You know, the, the money for the entry fee isn't much different than a normal weekend if you go, like I said, divisional or stuff. And you got pretty good. I mean, that's, I even like the fact, you know, the consolation race. I mean, the way it's set up is really exciting. And yeah, it's super cool. To it, me, it we're really on where I'm limited, I might only be able to go six or eight times and I can't tow more than seven, eight hours to go to a race. I mean, it's, you know, I told my wife as soon as I heard about it, Hey, we got plans. We're going to St. Louis for Easter. Right. <laughs> you know, and I'm not even that good. I'm not a professional, but you know what? It sounds great. Uh, if a guy goes out the consolation race, I mean, it's just, there's gonna be some really cool, really fast cars there. And I just want to be a part of it. I think that'll be awesome. Yeah, no, I think, like I said, I really hope it works and I hope it's a success. I think, uh, it's set up cool. Um, it should be a fun event. Um, I just hope that there's enough people willing to spend that kind of money. That's, that's my, uh, my big question. I mean, I even think about like the spring fling in Vegas, um, as an example, um, there'll be 500 racers there and I'm going to say less than 20 for sure. Less than 30 are from Vegas. Like people have to travel them all over to get that to make up those 500 cars you know and the pool of racers in pro and super pro is much larger than larger than the pool of racers in stock and super stock like i think i looked it up the other day like in 2019 between the two classes if you look at like the national points like total people that race stock and super stock in the whole country was like 2000 people so you need to get 260 people out of 2000 where like from a bracket standpoint there's probably 15,000 or more people that race super pro across the country every year. You've got a lot bigger pool to get your three to 500 cars than you do. You know, like it's just, it's tough. And I don't know, like I said, I hope it works. I wish he did it at a different time, not only for me being selfish so I could try to be there, but also, so I think there's going to be a lot. Of, it's pretty early in the year. People aren't ready to race then. People don't have their motors back together, their cars back together, especially like, well, I mean like the East coast, like, when do you guys start racing? May, June. April now you got to be ready year, by yeah. April at ACO, but we, we're praying about the future of that track right now. So, right. But in general, there's, I mean, even like I was talking to man's about it and he's like, man, I'd love to go, but I can promise you my dad's not going to be driving my rig through the snow. 
So <laughs> it's not going to matter if I want to go, if my dad doesn't want to drive the rig through the snow, you know, I mean, there's, and there's a lot of people like that. I mean, it, so I, I just hope that it's not too early that people are ready to race at that point. You know, I mean, a lot of people don't race till May or June every year. So it's definitely gave me motivation to get my work done early. And like I said, now I'm going to, I'm trying to figure out how I can get to Arizona and make some passes on a different setup before, you know, like, I don't want to go there and test. Like I got to go somewhere else from my car. It's going to be a crapshoot. So, right. But it's also early enough where everybody wants to get out and who knows with the pandemic and what the NHRA schedule, I mean, we might be, you might be sitting around bored, no place to go and be like, Hey, we're going to go. And I mentioned that to someone yesterday, like if for some reason with this, the whole Corona deal, if all this stuff on the West coast doesn't happen, I'll be there. I promise you. I just, uh, that being said, if there's three national events and a spring fling at home, I'm going to be at the spring fling and the national events for sure. You know, I mean, how can I not, I don't even have to, you know, I can drive five hours from home and be at all of them. I think, I think it's just really cool. They did it and it gives, you know, all the big money stuff out there right now. It gives stock, you know, kind of a legitimate place to go and actually run, you know, a tech and the way you setting it up. I think that's a, that's a great thing for the sport. And I guess we'll see how many people think it's great, but. No, I, I think it's a no brainer. If, if I hope people support it, I hope that they get a good enough car count that they can continue it on. Because I, I, I mean, I think that, uh, like I said, I would love the opportunity to race for that kind of money. Um, especially at a, if it was a time of year that I could get there. I think it's awesome. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I can race for that kind of money at like these bracket events, but I mean, I'm racing, you know, a bottom bulb super stalker a lot of times against, you know, electronics dragsters and, you know, it's just, it's not the same, like to do it in a true stock super stock format, blah, blah, blah. I think it'd be a, a lot of fun. Well, I hope NHRA is able to get all their events off. So that way you're not going to be there. That'll make me a little more excited. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> it's, it's nice to see a little competition we'll say for, for NHRA or just to, just to wake them up to the fact that there are other places because I, I do want NHRA to succeed. i the whole reason I race stock super stock is to run national events. That's it. If there's no national events, I'm done. I'm selling all my stuff. If anybody was ever willing to buy it, like I, I it's the whole reason I got into it. So I do want, I like racing in front of people as Brian hears me say all the time. I like national events. I do like the camaraderie camaraderie. I do the go there to win, but people walking around, I hand them flyers that explain stock and super stock. I mean, I have, um, feed random people. Uh, like I just, I enjoy those events. So. Yeah, no. And I, I think a lot of people do. I mean, I can tell you from like a sponsorship standpoint, like, I can't race without sponsors for sure. And people probably aren't going to sponsor me if I'm not at NHRA events. I mean, it's literally that simple. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to give people, get people to give me sponsorship money to events with no spectators. Like that's the only reason they're sponsoring me, you know? Right. Um, so that's what I would have a hard time with personally. Um, I like racing, whatever. I mean, I don't know that I prefer anything. I just, on the West coast national events are what we have. We have a couple bracket races a year and national divisionals there's no option like on the east coast you know you can race a different bracket race for 10 or 20 grand every week all year long it seems like like there's just it's a totally different atmosphere but out on the west coast like nhra is what we have to do and you know you gotta make the best of it so geez if there's no racing like what is justin lamb doing his free time when the race cars are ready to go and there's no place to race what are your what other hobbies well, do you have? no there's plenty of racing don't get me wrong and i just travel back there like i always make a trip back east for something like go to you know like uh 
what, two years ago, I went to like Chicago, Topeka, Bristol, I think. This year I went Indy, Bristol bracket race. I was supposed to go to a bracket race in Memphis. I ended up breaking my foot in Bristol, believe it or not, so I didn't go. But um, <laughs> like I always try to make a trip elsewhere, but there's quite a bit of racing out here. I mean, you got to remember like just – close to home. I mean, we got two national events in Vegas, two divisionals in Vegas, two national events in Pomona, a national and a divisional in Phoenix, a double divisional and national in Sonoma. Like there's a lot of stuff out this way and it's always typically grouped together. So where you can hit. So like last year, like Sonoma, they didn't have the national event, but if they did, there was like a bracket race two weeks prior that the track put on Kyle is the track manager there and put on. And uh, I think it was like 10, 20 and 10 to win something along those lines then you leave your rig for a week fly back there's a double divisional followed by a national event all in a row so i mean there so it's kind of cool because they group it together where you can race like three out of four weeks or whatever the case and same way like phoenix is typically it's changed this year but typically you go like phoenix national phoenix divisional tucson divisional which tucson's only like i don't know an hour hour and a half from phoenix so you you know you go to all three and then come home and you're off for a couple of weeks before you race in Vegas for a month. And then, so, I mean, there's plenty of racing more, more than enough. I don't want to be at a racetrack every weekend, to be honest with you. I like doing other things. And, well, what do what you, you doing? do? Yeah. yeah. Um, anything like we have like the Colorado river close to home. So in the summer, we try to go down there uh, with the kids. We'll go camping, bring the boat and go down and, you know, cruise around and just other things. Like, honestly, whatever doesn't involve a racetrack. Like I do race so much and put, when I'm there, like it's work. Like it just is. I'm not, it's not always fun for me. Like it is at times, but a lot of times it's work. Like I put a ton of effort into it and a ton of pressure to do well and blah, blah, blah. That like I, after racing two or three weeks in a row, like I'm going to be honest, we raced a month in a row at the end of the year. There was a fling in Vegas and then there was like the three weeks of NHRA stuff. I lost in stock. Like what I guess must have been Saturday morning of the final divisional. And literally, like, it was loaded, golf cart in, everything in. I'm like, Dad, like, are you sure you even want to race Superstock? Like, I kind of left it on him. Like, I'm just ready to go home. Like, I was in, and I was, but it, we'd only won first round at that point. I'm like, Dad, we're one round in. Like, there's seven to go. The wet, it was freezing cold, windy. Like, let's just get, to, get out of here. And he's like, well, let's just race another round and see how it goes. And, like, the next thing you know, we raced the whole race. But, like, I mean, I was ready to go. Like, it's just too much for me. But. It's draining. Yeah, it's draining. You need some time away sometimes. Well, it's all about balance, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. So, and, and like for me, like I have to work in between the races. You know, it's not like I just get like the week off to recoup. Like, I mean, I get done on Sunday and Monday morning at 6 a.m. I'm working again and I'm working until the second I leave to go back the next week. And, you know, it's just, it can be a lot. That's all. It sounds like the wife, uh, you're getting support at home, I would think, to be racing as much as you do. Yeah, and the time and, and the commitments that you put in, it's hard to do without, you know, a good uh, support staff behind you. And it sounds like you have it. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely a ton. Um, you know, like my parents, obviously with the racing directly and then uh, Janine, my wife takes care of the kids. Um, Cause I mean, yeah, they go with? Times, like I don't have time. I mean, I mean, I see the, you know, I mean, like I see the kids have dinner with the kids, whatever, but I mean, like, like my son is, being homeschooled right now because of the whole pandemic and has been since, I don't know, March, I think. And so like, that's like, 
like now when it's the off season, I can help here and there, but during the rest of the, I mean, it's a hundred percent on her all the time, you know, especially when I'm racing three or four weeks back to back, like there's no, I'm not much help. Let's put it that way. Well, you better get a nice Christmas present. Right. Every weeks. <laughs> do they all go with you to the track? They do. Yeah. I mean, not every race, but they definitely do. Yeah. Let's so like this year, like we went back East, like Indy, they didn't go. And then when I flew back to go to the fling and that other bracket race, we, uh, they flew, they came with me and we kind of went on a little road trip and it's fun. So it just depends. Like they kind of pick and choose, like, like, you know, they like going to Southern California, so they go to Pomona, but Phoenix is kind of, eh, so they don't typically go to Phoenix, you know, like they definitely pick and choose what's more fun. Right. Well, it's hard too. <laughs> like, I know my kids are eight and 13 and they're kind of into it, but man, like a, a divisional race, you sit around quite a bit. Like I can only imagine like some of the nationals like, Oh, there goes dad one pass. Now what are we going to do for the next three hours or a day? You know? Right. Yeah. To be honest with you, like my son who has a junior dragster, whatever has virtually zero interest in it. Like, I mean, he's made like 10 or 15 runs in this thing. Like since he was five, like he just, it just not, he doesn't care that much. So he's not there to watch me race anyway. He's there to like hang out with the other kids at the racetrack and, you know, ride a scooter around, whatever. So like, it's kind of, for my kids, it doesn't matter if I race 10 times a day or twice a day. Like they, they're not really there to watch me race anyway. So <laughs> just, just bring that big trophy home at the end of the day so they can get in a picture with you. <laughs> right. So um, man, the time is flying by here. We're like almost an hour in. I want to get into some, you know, rules with you for stock and super stock. I mean, we ask everybody, what is one rule you would like to see changed in stock or super stock? And I don't know. Um, I feel like from like a car perspective, the two that I think are important, and, and I do think these are important, are and, and having both cars, I feel like I have a little bit of perspective on this. Being able to have both batteries in the trunk in a stalker, instead of forcing people to have a battery in the nose, like let's say my like 70 Camaro, like we had to have a battery in the nose and then you can have an, a separate battery in the trunk if you'd like. And I just feel like it's so like one-sided, I guess, is like brand new Copos, Mustangs, they have just have both batteries in the trunk and I get it. That's the way they came. But like, what is it? Like, what does it hurt anybody to be able to move that battery to the trunk if they need to, you know, mm -hmm. like, and I think it would help a lot of people. I really do. Um, and then the other thing that I really, and, I, and I've really thought about pushing the envelope on this one is allowing people to have like four nine inches in older cars. If a brand new Copo Camaro can come with a four nine inch, or I guess if they want to call it a GM nine inch, why can't I put a nine inch in my 70 Camaro for the ease of being able to change ratios and third members and there's more gears available and more, it's just better all the way around. And I just, like I've thought about pushing the envelope, like as far as I read, the rear end had to come in a GM vehicle. You can run it in a GM car. Well, a Copo is a GM vehicle. Why can't I put in a 70 Camaro? Right. <laughs> and if I still own the 70, I probably would have done it already just to see what they'd say, because I think that it's only fair. Like, I just don't, I don't agree with that. Easy, Justin. I think we just gave Ford too much credit for coming up with a good design. <laughs> we all love that Ford nine inch rear. Let me tell you. Right. No kidding. Um, so those are probably two things from like a performance perspective that I think, um, I, I just think that, uh, I, I shouldn't even say performance, just like 
usability, workability of the car, all of the above. Like, right. like, let's be realistic. Like I like 90% sure the way it's been explained to me, like a, like a 12 bolt is actually like more efficient than a four, nine inch, like a nine inch, like technically has slightly more drag than a, than a 12 bolt would. So it's not a performance advantage, but it's absolutely an ease of use advantage. You know, like it's, if you do break a gear, you just swap a third member real quick. You're not mm -hmm. laying in your back in the pits trying to fix this 12 bolt or whatever, you know, like there's just so many different, I just think it would make it way easier for the racers and way cheaper for the racers. I mean, a, way less expensive, I think, to work on a nine inch than it is anything else. Yep. Well, how about this? You go back and forth between stock and super stock and fling races. One's got true start, one doesn't. What are your thoughts on true start and stock and super stock? This is a sensitive subject, you know. <laughs> um, so keeping in mind that like two of my best friends like created true start. I think it is absolutely terrible on the bottom, completely terrible. There's no reason for it. And the, the point of true start and the bulk of their business is top ball bracket racing. And on the top ball, both guys are staging at the same, you know, once both cars are right. staged, the top ball comes on at the same time. They're letting off the button at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. So I think it makes all the sense in the world to have true start, but in a bottom ball brace, the slower car distinctly gets that clean tree. They don't have to worry about when to bring it up on the chip. They don't have to worry about the car driving behind the tree as the tree's coming down. They don't have to worry about nothing. They, when both cars are staged, they can just deck it, whatever they do, hit the bottom, take off. Well, on the flip side of that, leaving second, you do have to like, okay, it's a five second spot. When am I gonna bring it up on a chip? And then now like this car's like driving by as my tree's coming, like there's so many other factors, right? It's definitely, I mean, you can just see it all day long, even on like a time runs to eliminations, right? Like you can have a guy that's 10 and 10 and 10 on time runs. And then all of a sudden he's got to sit there for two seconds and he's 40. Like it's, it's difficult. And uh, I feel like with true start, the, the, the one distinct advantage that the faster car has is the, the first car going red. Well, now you've just given the red light advantage away. Like that's no longer anything. And the slow car still gets the clean tree and the fast car still sitting behind this tree waiting for multiple seconds while cars are driving by. Like, I think there's no place for it in bottom ball, in my opinion. And I, I never, understood, that I never understood why it was there in Super Pro to begin with. Yeah, like you said, they're leaving off the button the same exact time. That was just idiotic to me that the first car to red light would, you know, the slow car would just lose on a red light. But I mean, me, everybody, anybody that's ever listened to this show, I, I think it should be in stock and super stock. It doesn't have to necessarily be like that true start. Like, show the red light. Just bring the blocker down, block both sides, and um, that's it. When both cars leave the line, then put the, put the wind light up. That's all I'm advocating for. Brian hates me, and, and you disagree with me too. <laughs> Next yeah, topic. I just don't think it's that would mean we're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it doesn't mean anybody's right or wrong. I just don't, I think there's just distinct advantages of being the slower or the faster car when pertaining to the starting line in particular. Right. But my thinking ball. is the faster car has the, for the next 1,319 feet, the, the faster car has the advantage in my opinion. So I just figured it was a good offset. But you also have all the distractions, which I never really thought about until Justin just said with everything else going <laughs> on, cars moving, stuff taken off. I mean, it's, but I also, 
I also don't agree that the faster cars advantage the whole other 13 or 19 feet. Cause I could tell you this, like, and he's beat my ass up a million times. I feel like, but I guarantee you it would be no advantage if Jody Lang chased. <laughs> he's just as good or better than me right. getting chased than right. I am chasing him. Like no doubt about it. So how does, how do, how would I have the advantage in that scenario? Like, I mean, he's absolutely, I mean, and, and not only that, I mean, like Jody in particular, I mean, he's so freaking good at it and he can stop faster, hit the brakes harder, all of the above than anything I could ever even dream of doing in my freaking eight second car. Like I, I would argue that like racing Jody is it, I, I don't see that I have an advantage whatsoever. Like well, we, we did want you guys to switch cars one day. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago, Brian. That'd be awesome. We were like Justin and Jody switch cars. Right. Um, but even in that scenario, like I could be wrong, but the well, chance looking straight versus, life, versus turning, I mean, constant turning around when you got the whole race in front of you. I mean, just from a, you know, you got to take human, off your slow car glasses sense, for a second, right? Bobby. What's yeah. that? You got to take off your slow car goggles. <laughs> well, and I think a lot of it is mental. Like, I think a lot of it is the fact that, that you have, uh, everybody's got this perception that it's you can't do it like it's such an advantage being the faster car well someone forgot to tell jody because he doesn't seem to have an issue and like if we did switch cars like he'd probably be better than me at the finish line getting chased or who knows but like the starting line i guarantee you my group of lights would be better if i was leaving first me personally no doubt in my mind and he'd probably struggle having to sit there and watch me drive away in his wagon and have to hit the tree (laughs) sitting there for five seconds i promise you <clears throat> the finish line, he'd be great either way, but I just, I, I really think that there's, there's an advantage to a certain extent. And, and do I, I mean, I agree for like the average racer chasing is easier, but I mean, I'm trying to think, I, I just raced someone recently where I took like seven or 8,000 getting chased in a Copo that you can't see out of. I mean, it's, if you've ever sat in one or joke and I figured it out. So why can't everybody else? Like, I, I just, I don't know. I, I guess my argument is like, like who's the best, the best chasing superstar guy in the country. I mean, let's just call it Fletcher because he's probably the best at all of the above. And Jody, who's the best at getting chased, is any one of them distinctly better than the other at the finish line? I doubt it. I think they're very, very equal. If anything, I like, I mean, Jody's freaking good. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's amazing. How about you should these, ask him uh... the other controversial question since we're winning here. What do you think about e-shift? I don't know. Uh, I've never used it. I've never tried it. I, I, I had a transmission this one time, and I don't know what it was called. It was a metric 200 where it has like a governor that shifts first to second or something. But I felt like it was inconsistent as far as like if the trans temperature was hotter or colder, it would shift sooner or later, whatever. Mm-hmm. I ran like 10 runs with it and took it out. And never, I've just always manually shifted and I mean, if someone needs each shit, like, I don't care. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't affect me. Like, I don't, I'm going to manually shift. And I feel like I'm probably like, I like manually shifting for multiple reasons. Number one, I think I can be consistent at it. But number two, I think, um, I like the fact that like, if I think I didn't get the tree, I might run out the shift to, you know, make the car run a little quicker. So I have a little more room at the finish line, hit the brakes or whatever. Like, I kind of like having control of it. If someone doesn't want control, like, that's fine. I, I mean, whatever. Right. I don't know that it matters. 
put it this way, like this is a, something to think about, like with the whole e-shift thing. Without a doubt, in my opinion, a pro stock car is the most consistent car to racetrack any given week. Those things will literally just repeat over and over and over and over again. And they manually shift them four times. And they'll literally just go 653, 653, 653, like re over and over and over. So if they can shift it four times, I can't shift it twice. Like maybe I shouldn't be driving. I don't know. <laughs> I like it. Now, Justin, they just made some rule changes to the GT classes. I mean, basically what they're saying is you take your horsepower rating, you multiply it by the weight break you want to run, the class that you want to run, and that's it. That's your new minimum weight. As long as it's above, I think, 2670 with the driver on board. Do you, do you like that? Do you agree with it, disagree with it? I had a hard time understanding the GT weight breaks before that, but now to me it's simplified. Yeah, I think it, it really simplified the GT weight breaks, number one. Number two, it's just what I'm used to. Like in modify that, it's just instead of being weight per horsepower, it's weight per cubic inch. And it's very simple and easy to figure out and easy to decide what class you want to run. Like, I think it simplified it and made it much easier for all to understand. So I like it. Um, that being said, I, maybe there's someone out there that has a valid reason that it's not good, which I'd be open to hearing. I just, uh, me personally, I don't, I don't know any reason not to make it like that. How about when you have a GT? All right, so this weekend on our Facebook, I, I was just going through the guide trying to find situations where the GT motor is rated less than the actual true combo. 1966 uh, Chevy Nova, I think it was the 283, is rated at um, 237 horsepower, where the GT of that year is rated at 230. So now you're just allowed to take your nova and just call it a gt car and get seven less horsepower rating do you think like my thinking was the the gt should be rated at least as high as the highest rating for that 283 motor so if the if the highest rating for that 283 motor is in that 66 nova 237 the gt has to be at least 237 because my thinking is you're taking a gt you're taking a motor and putting it in a better car and that's the whole reason to build a gt car to begin with like what do you what do you think about that yeah, um, I, I guess I'd have to look at it and see. What you're saying makes sense. I mean, why would it be rated less? Um, and I'm sure the simple answer is, is someone with a really fast 66 Nova went out and got it, the regular SS factor hit. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to really think about it. I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. So if somebody gets that regular combo hit, you don't, do you think it should hit the GT? Like, I'm under... And I'm sure I have more to read because I learned a lot just this weekend on it. If that Nova hits that 283, I believe the GT needs to get hit. If somebody in a Cobalt or whatever hits that 283, the Nova should not get hit. Okay? So I feel like SS should hit GT. GT should not hit SS. That's the way. I like the idea of keeping them separate myself. I really do. And I do think that NHRA allows them to go... I think that now you're allowed to go from super stock to GT. Is that right? Like, so if you have that fast Nova, you could technically, you could hit seven horsepower, just run GT now. Yeah. In the same year, which I, I just learned that this weekend. I didn't even know you were allowed to do that. And I think it's a bullshit rule. Yeah. Well, the fact that they did allow them to do that. I mean, that's a decision that NHRA made. I just, uh, I guess my only comment, I do think it should be kept separate. I really do. I don't think it's fair to hit one, one way, but not the other, whatever I, 
I feel like GT and Superstock should just be kept separate. I really do. How about modified? Yeah, I modified. hate the scoops. <laughs> yeah, modified, whatever. It is what it is. I don't, I don't know. That's a funny one to me. Like people complain about like hood scoop cars. To be honest with you, I'm not even that fast anymore. Like I have a hood scoop car and like I'm on the, I mean, I get chased by like Mustangs that go, 175 miles an hour and go 880s or something or 780s like what do you care on my hood scoop for i mean <laughs> i mean i've been chased by a gt car before seriously like uh frank grossi owned a car that i believe he sold to Irvin johns but i'm not sure but it was a he passed away now but um anyways it was like a big block sunfire so it was like a front wheel drive conversion gt double a car with a big block something in it that I remember like in Vegas, I'm dialed like 890 and this guy was dialed 870 in this thing. Like, Jeez. does it matter if I have a hood scoop or not? It's just something I got to look over it to try to hit the tree. What, other than that, what does it make a difference? That's a so, good point. Yeah. That's an interesting one to me. Like, I don't really care. I mean, give me an 890 car with a flat hood. It, what, it doesn't make a difference to me. Like, I can just see better. <laughs> Thanks. Do you think um, sticks and autos should be combined? No. I don't. I just think that they're very, very, I think that they're very different. And I think that there's times that automatics are actually faster than the sticks. And I think there's times that it's the other way around. Like, I, I don't know that there's like a clear cut answer that, you know, sir, you know, whatever stick car is faster. So, I mean, go back to like a pro stock car, right? If you got a five speed Liberty or you put a three speed automatic that five speed Liberty is going to kick its ass. Right. So should they be equal then? No. But on the flip side of that, like I've seen in like stock eliminator cars where the autos are actually faster than the sticks. And is that just because the autos have more horsepower? Or is that because the autos are more efficient? Like, I don't know. The yeah, answer it probably to that, varies, right? You think it varies from car to car? It can um, vary so much from car to car. I just think it should be kept separate. How about the indexes? Do you think they should just... So do you think the sticks should have like the quicker index and the automatic should keep the slower index? My thought is, is that like a stick theoretically should be quicker. And I think the reason the index is like that, because if you think about it, like a stick shift has an extra gear. It doesn't slip like an automatic. You have that horsepower loss just through the automatic. That's substantially more than a stick. Like, so I think the indexes make sense. And I mean, if you think about it in stock and super stock, the correction is going to come in in the rating. So if, if the uh, auto class is 500 slower index, chances are, auto classes are going to if they're if they do have a better more efficient transmission they're going to end up with a higher horsepower rating anyway that's going to slow them back down and the stick cars i mean across the board i feel like the stick cars have less horsepower on them than automatics if the automatics have ever been hit they you know like if they're fast at all like like i'm i mean i've, I've not looked it up but i'm just going to go on a limb like if you look up like a big block 396 camaro like a 69 camaro i bet the automatic horsepower is way higher than a stick but I could be wrong. I'm just guessing. I just know there's like a ton of fast 69 Camaros with 76s, right. you know? Like, look at if you look at my combo, you know, on a 2000 Camaro, the stick is what 42 horsepower less than the auto. Right. Which I think is like the same thing man's run, right? His father, Randy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so I you, think they, yeah. I really think the stick cars need to be kept separate. See, I, it's. It... <laughs> It screws me both ways. Like L stock automatic is a 1270 L stick is a 1270. I run the automatic. So I don't get the, I don't get the break there. 
Superstock L stick is 1125. Superstock L automatic 1145. And I run the stick there. So I'm like on losing end of both, both of them. Um, some of the indexes, they just don't make sense to me though. In, in stock and super stock, like in stock, they drop 1500s basically the whole way down the alphabet. And then K to L only drop 500s written in HRA about that, like multiple times. They have no interest in changing it. I can't move my car up to K because my shipping weight limits me to L, M, and N. It's just like, I don't know. Some it probably come to the good this. side. You should probably just buy a Chevy. Right. And it comes back to car selection. You know, like I, I have nobody to blame but myself. I just didn't, you know, I didn't know all this stuff when I, when I got my car, though. So certain things, you know, car selection, certain things are stupidity. Yeah, I think uh, it's tough. I don't know. Uh, I don't always. Uh, I don't always understand. Like, I'm probably way too young or way too new to understand some of those differences. Even in some of the newer cars, like I'd have to look it up. But it's similar in like the factory GT classes compared to which was like a new rule. Now they came up. So if you look at like super stock, regular super stock and regular GT, if you run like. Super stock A or GTA, the weight breaks the same. Let's say they're both six pounds. Well, in factory stuff, factory super stock was five pounds and factory GT was six pounds. Well, the problem with that was if you wanted to run like the same motor in that super stock A car and a GT car, you couldn't because it would weigh like 4,000 pounds, right? So it just didn't make any sense. So now they added those two classes. So there's a five pound weight break in both now. But like, I'm sure there was logic when they created this stuff. I just unfortunately... I don't know it personally, you know. Right. They just created the factory GT AA, which is the five to five point four nine, and the uh, the factory GT BB five and a half to five point nine nine. Yeah. So. But that was purely a product. <laughs> like, if you look at like, um, factory super stock A, it was already five. Factory five super stock, yeah. Right. So the problem mm -hmm. is like if you so like let's just say like what fits in there is like a two thousand twenty Copo, right, with a supercharger. Well, if you wanted to put that same exact Cobo motor in a GT car, you couldn't because it, it would weigh like literally, I, it would be like 3,800 pounds, which there's not even a chassis cert for 3,800 pounds, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was the issue. Okay. Insightful. All right. Well, listen, we are running out of time. So I, my next question to you is, well, we have a couple more questions. Um, first off, do you have any sponsors or special people that you would like to thank? Um, I'll just throw out some of the, the big ones, but, um, kind of my, my biggest sponsors are, uh, um, Silver State Refrigeration and Silver State Plumbing here in town. They're a big plumbing outfit and uh, HVAC outfit here in Vegas. That has uh, been a long time supporter of mine. Another local company is Palmer Electric, same thing, sponsored me for years. And then, uh, Rad Torque Systems out of Canada is a big sponsor that, uh, they make a set up like an impact, like used to actually make like a uh it's kind of like a uh, planetary gear set in a like an automatic transmission and it uses like a planetary gear set to tighten instead of like the actual impact motion so like you can tighten a bolt way tighter way less effort. like you can literally like do lug nuts on like a gigantic caterpillar tractor with your handheld gun and it wow. just takes them right off like it's crazy so what's the name of that company uh rad torque systems rad torque systems all right uh, it's pretty cool. But yeah, those are kind of the big, I mean, I have a ton of help, but, but those are definitely uh, some of the bigger ones that I just would like to mention. 
Uh, one more thing we ask everybody is, you know, name one person, you know, you would like to see us have on this show. Um, well, I think that being that you guys are both EFI guys, I think Ben would be a cool one um, from EFI University. Um, and I don't know, I feel like anybody, I, you know, who, like some of the guys that I would like love to hear from uh, just because I think they're interesting. Um, and, and I don't even know him like, um, like Jason Lyon's brother, Lance Lyon, like everything that guy touches is like the fastest in his class. Like it's crazy. And it'd just be cool to like, maybe hear what he had to say. And, and uh, I mean, I don't know how much he'd share if there's anything you could pick up on, but just seems like a genius in the engine building department. And I mean, there's just, I don't know, some people like that I think would be cool. Um, I don't know another example of that, but he's just one that I think would be awesome. Um, if you guys want to hear some amazing stories, if, if you guys know Jimmy DeFrank, him and his father have just such a long history in racing. Yeah. Uh, it's humble. Uh, like his dad had Hemi cars and, and like stuff. I don't even like, I feel like I talked to Jimmy, like we'll go out and hang out and like racing will come up. Most of the time we avoid racing, but when we do talk about it, like, I mean, he'll like, I didn't even know his dad had Hemi cars. And all of a sudden he's like, Hey, check out this picture. We found in my dad's old Hemi car. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I mean, they have like such a long history of racing and Jimmy is like an encyclopedia of dates and years. And like, I mean, he could tell you like who won the 1974 Winter Nationals in stock, like off the wow. top of his head, like just crazy. <laughs> it's just super. I mean, number one, he's a super accomplished racer himself, but just the history that, that he knows about our sport and, and in particular, his family is pretty cool. All right. And one final question. Um, do you have any ideas? What would you do, you know, to bring more people into class racing or to spread the word? know at national events i don't know the answer to that i feel like um i feel like the answer to bringing more people to class racing is the answer is probably this just bringing more people to nhra and i really think it's moving the age demographic like the average i mean i i would i don't even know what it is but like the average racer in stock like the average age of a racer in super stock has got to be what 60 yeah like probably. we need that to be like 35 or 40 like when people are like the height of their you know um working lives and making the most money and blah 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 like they could probably afford to do it kind of thing and 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 maybe uh specifically enticing people like like some of the, the newer i'm not saying newer combos is like copos and stuff but like putting it you know, making it known, like, like, I don't know, like, I think about it, okay, like, a guy that's 60 probably drove a 69 Camaro to high school or something, right? But a guy that, a guy that is currently 35 or 40 or 45 probably drove like an IROC to high school. So like, maybe pushing that a little bit more, something along those lines, like, because they, they could relate more. And then obviously, the younger kids are, you know, it's going to continue getting the newer and newer cars. But I just think that somehow, I have no idea the answer, I wouldn't be working for the city where I live in, but like somehow like um, the answer to NHRA as a whole, I think it's just getting a younger age demographic and, and using some of their younger drivers to their advantage. Like, like instead of the whole pro show being all about John force, I mean, that's just, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like John force is NHRA racing. Why don't we focus a little bit more on some of the younger guys with the younger demographic, you know, like, why does everything got to be? I mean, I realized he stopped racing this year, but I mean, he stopped racing. I remember watching, I like very rarely ever watched the, the pro show or anything, but I remember him, they, 
he wasn't even at the race. And I feel like 25% of the show was talking about him not being at the race. Like, why don't we focus on the young guys that are at the race or girls that are at the race, you know, like, and I think it's just making other people stars, right? Like, I feel like NASCAR has done a little bit better job of it. Like Dale Earnhardt was the star and then it moved from Dale Earnhardt to, um, what I guess probably Jeff Gordon. Then it moved from Jeff Gordon to Jimmy Johnson. Like they kind of progressively kept getting younger. Like we still have John force from the days that they had Dale Earnhardt. Like it hasn't changed. Like our star of the show is still the same guy for the last 40 years. And I feel like if we could somehow change that and make someone that appeals to the younger generation, the star, it would be very good for the sport. Right. But I don't know who that is or the answer. I mean, so well, for super cool, might yeah. not be everybody else does. Like Antron, right. guys like cool as shit. I mean, just super energetic, appeals to the young, young or old crowd. Like good dude. Like make him the star of the show, right? Well, what a, I mean, what about yourself? I mean, we're, we want to grow stock and super stock. Also, give us TV time. Let us race on Saturday and Sunday. Okay, not yeah. Thursday night first round. Um, let's run I class in front of people. But I do think it still starts with the whole age demo- like it starts with the whole demographic in my opinion like i think nhra is a little bit broken and i think the whole thing needs to be fixed and when it's fixed every five does that make yeah. sense yeah trickle down effect yeah i do um i really think it would all right well, we appreciate you coming on justin it's uh you got a lot of insight and it's it's really i appreciate hearing from somebody with your experience and it's just amazing how many things you can pick out of this and that's that's kind of the whole thing I like about the show, right? Like we have some really experienced people that know a lot of stuff and we, you know, how do we get more tips to the people that are struggling so everybody can be more successful. And we really appreciate you sharing some of that with us. Well, I appreciate you guys having me and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't mind coming on at all. I think it's cool. And it's cool to have conversation about racing and, you know, keep the conversation going, especially this time of year when people are probably not wanting to talk about racing and just to keep everybody's interest and, things like that you know well I'm, I'm impressed we've had you on for an over an hour now and i haven't seen you on your pro tree there behind the vitamin c so oh uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> well yeah you guys missed my 8 30 window like uh, <laughs> nah, he doesn't need to practice anyway <laughs> i need to practice trust me especially on the starting line it's my downfall <laughs> well, all right well we thank you very it. much thank you justin lamb thank you everybody that tuned in thank you uh facebook visitors that were uh, chiming in also and we wish everybody a great week and get working on your stuff hope to see you out next year everybody take care Thanks. and if you need to know where to find us go to class racing today on facebook give us a like give it a share you can also find us on youtube